Hi, and welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. I'm Crystal Falk, the editor of the Toolkit. My guest today is James Gray, whose sixth movie, The Lost City of Z, is hitting theaters. James, it's, it's Los Angeles. This this is going up on Thursday, so you're... It's Los Angeles and New York tomorrow, I the, guess, will be the 14th. 14th. Which is my birthday, which is very weird. Happy birthday. Thank you. It'll either be a happy birthday or a terrible birthday, right? And then it goes nationwide April 21st, the week after. Cool, cool. That's great. And so... Um, I mean, you guys, I mean, IndieWire readers know James's work. Um, we Own the Night. Uh, last film was um, The Immigrant, Two Lovers, um, and, now, and now a film. And, I, you know, I saw it last night, and turn of the century explorer of the Amazon, <laughs> trying to find a lost city along the Amazon, that isn't something that I necessarily... It, that doesn't scream James Gray movie to me. Do you want, why, why, why is it something that they thought you would do a good job with? Is there something that... You know, you'd have to ask them about the logic. I don't think there is any logic. What happened was uh, I was at home. Actually, no, I was in New York. Um, and I was, I think, doing some press for Two Lovers, which was coming out right around that time. And Plan B, Didi Gardner, Jeremy Kleiner, and Brad Pitt, they're the, the guys who run that company, Pretty much I got a call out of the blue, you know, Brad Pitt saying, Jimmy Jam, you want to do this book? I got it from Paramount. And Paramount bought the book for Brad. And I said, oh, well, that's interesting. I have no idea what it is because I guess I had read, my wife reminded me just last night that I had read David Grant's article in The New Yorker about him, but I didn't connect it for some reason. And when I got the book, I had the same reaction you did, which is I said, I have absolutely no idea why they want me to do this. There had been nothing in my career as a director that had shown that I could do anything like this or me, even finish a film coherently for that matter. But uh, in, in any event, to make a long story longer, I decided ultimately that if I were ever going to try something like this, that it has to be now. At the time, I was 38 years old, 39 years old, and um, I had made four pictures, and I thought, time to take a risk. Now, as these things go, uh, I couldn't uh, get the money together and all the resources together at the time I finished the script, which was late 2009. And it was you know, it was a huge struggle because the picture, obviously, is a massive undertaking logistically. So in the middle of it, I went off and made another movie and then came back to this. So it's had nine lives in a way. I'm curious, once you read the book, because you clearly did connect to the material, what, what was it that, that you saw your way into it? I never saw it as a historical epic, you know, and tea and crumpets, you know, mm -hmm. kind of thing combined, masterpiece theater. That, that sort of thing doesn't interest me at all. Uh, what I did get interested in was this idea that the human race has created for itself a punishing, heartless hierarchy. And Fawcett was, it was a very short passage in the book, it was maybe a paragraph, talking about his upbringing and talking about his father, who was a drunk and a gambler, destroyed not one but two family fortunes, and uh, that he was a man of shame. He had started out as equerry to Edward VII. He, was, he hung out in, in, in the most rarefied social circles and destroyed the family name, and Fawcett himself had to emerge from that, emerge from that wreckage. And I thought, okay, well, that's interesting. As a character, uh, he would have to emerge from something that was so difficult, especially in a system where overtly class 
is such a major aspect of uh, English life, particularly Victorian and Edwardian England. So I thought, okay, I can understand that. I can understand a person who feels disrespected, who wants to prove himself, who feels shut out. Uh, that moved me. It was very emotional to me. And all the period stuff, all that, tra all the trappings of that, and then going to the jungle, honestly came second. It always starts for me with character. Mm -hmm. And I, I felt sympathetic to him. The thing, I rewatched a few of your films this week and in preparation for this, and I mean, I'd seen them all before. And, and then watching the film last night, one thing that I really, I mean, the family stuff is ingrained in all of your, the, the, uh, the, the relationship to family and whatever the central conflict is for your protagonist is always, is, is always so big in your work. But one thing that became really clear that I kind of started to think about other protagonists of yours is the, the search. Not only that family, not only the, the limitations or of class, of society, of family, but also... Uh, and in this case, that search is, is a very, you know, it's going to Bolivia, it's going down the, it, it, but it's, it, literal. But it's literal. Um, and maybe that's why it became more obvious. But in retrospect, that aspect of the Percy character um, felt so connected of the way that, that that search and then also the relationship of the family back home and, the, and also the backstory of the family, the father pushing him, the, that seemed to be almost taking some of the ideas of, of your work and, and, and and putting them on this, this journey. Is that, does that make any sense? It makes perfect sense. I mean, I have to tell you, I don't sit down right. and say this film has to have the following categories fulfilled right. to be part of a my A James Gray film exactly. is A, B, C, D. Never yeah. ever think in those terms yeah. ever. But what is obvious is that there are certain things that either attract you or don't attract you in a story. Mm -hmm. And I know I've spoken about this before, but it does, it, there's no doubt it's such a major part of it, which is that when you grow up, I grew up in a working class neighborhood in Queens, New York, in Flushing. I like to say as in the toilet bowl. Uh, although it's a very different neighborhood now than what it was when I grew up. I mean, now all of a sudden you can get the greatest dumplings of all time there, which was not the case when I grew up. When I grew up there, it was Archie Bunker land, you know, semi-attached row house. And it felt, you know, I can't say that I had all that happy a childhood um, and Manhattan, even though it was the 70s, it was a grim period, but Manhattan was a very exciting place, and it was very close and yet very far, and I felt shut out. And that conflict, that desire, that need to be embraced and loved and not looked down upon or not condescended to was palpable. And it has made its way into every film. Now, you talk about the search. There is a personal odyssey that we can go on, and it doesn't really matter whether it's nine miles to Manhattan or 900 miles away. Or in the case of Percy Fawcett, right, it's probably 4,000 miles away. This is the thing that we have to contemplate as filmmakers is what does it mean as part of the story? In other words... There are specifics to the ethnographic aspect, right? There's indigenous people of South America. There's the trappings of Edwardian England. All that's part of the story. But the story is not the story. Mm -hmm. The subtext is the story. 
the subtext is really what a movie is about. So in that way, I think the movie, this Lost City of Z, is still really just about a, a kind of a loser from Queens who wants to, to prove himself and to do something that ha- means something to the world. I mean, you know what I'm saying? I it's, do. I it do. Seems very, it seems very self-obsessed, but in a sense, as a director, you have to be self-obsessed. If you're not, then it's kind of a waste of time. But what you hope is that being this narcissistic, self-obsessed, nauseating person, that you p- push so far in that direction, hopefully, that the picture then takes on a larger, sort of more generalized meaning. And of course, once you are your narcissistic self and getting the film made, it's a collaborative medium, so all these other people come to help you, and then you have to forget yourself completely, and you have to be willing to absorb all the beautiful ideas that come your way that enhance the scope of what it means to be a, a loser from Queens. I don't. This is always tricky because I don't want to. I don't. Oh, let's pause and you get your chocolate no, no, cake no, there. No, 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 no. It's not that important. <laughs> The, uh, it's, I don't want to ruin the end here, um, but this film has all the limits of society, and, and possibly even more so than in your other films, because you're also talking about a limit of how people are viewed and how the savages are viewed. And, and this character, Percy, um, partially through you know the family, he has this wonderful wife played by um, Sarah Miller, but there's this ending which is tragic and quite beautiful, but it's almost this element of, and it felt this like this great liberation and a liberation that was earned and of course also tragic, but where he, he almost, there's that end where there's this peace and he's almost like elevated above, like he's found some kind of elevation above everything. And he's also, and there's also that element of he seems to have found it in his wife and no longer after the war being concerned so much about these class things that have defined him. It, in some ways, it's, I know there's a, there's a tragedy to this film, but in some ways, there, it, it's, it, it's this, op, it's one of your more optimistic films in that sense of the character being able to transcend those circumstances. I'm thrilled that you got that from the movie. It was entirely intended that way. You know, there have been a handful of films made in Amazonia. Obviously, the films of Werner Herzog, which are magnificent, and mm-hmm. Certainly Apocalypse Now is a great, you know, jungle river journey movie, even though it has nothing to do with this, even on the surface. But I I felt in particular, and this is not to denigrate Werner Herzog, by the way, please don't misunderstand me, listeners. I think Herzog's the greatest, and those movies are incredible. I love them. But I didn't want to make that same movie again. It would be a disaster if I did on every level. First of all, it's been made already. It's called The Gear of the Wrath of God, so why make it again? But I also felt that it would have been... It's a very interesting discussion. It leads directly into what you're talking about, about this level. Really what you're talking about is the movie, in, in a sense, is trying to sell you a level of transcendence. I felt that I needed to do that because if I had made the movie where, you know, a guy goes super crazy, crazier, crazier, and at the end he's pulling his hair out and he kills his son and it's a tragedy and what a catastrophe. There is an aspect to it, given this story, that a bit of racism would creep in because if you look at Aguirre or Fitzcarraldo, 
Agira, for example, or Apocalypse Now, which we can talk about as well, it's about people wrestling with megalomania, and in the case of Agira and Fitzcarraldo even, a little less so, an aspect of greed. Here, the idea of the story is quite the opposite. He begins to lose his obsession with any kind of glory because he begins to acknowledge the common humanity, the normality of the people with whom he's coming in contact. So how can I end a film with someone descending into like psychosis if what I'm trying to communicate is that he realizes there is a, a, a level of normality to them, to the indigenous, mm. as well as there is for him. To do anything else would still push the indigenous into the realm of the other. Right. You understand what I'm I saying? I do, absolutely. Yeah. So when the film, I made the film, it was a conscious effort to move away from Herzog and to do something new which was to say, okay, we have the beginnings of Herzog. He goes down to the jungle. But in the end, he's seen a part of the world that most Western Europeans and North Americans had never, and certainly even to this day, have never seen. And he has met whom the rest of white Europe and America sees as the big other. Mm -hmm. And he's confronted them. Now, we think, obviously, they killed him. But they killed him for a variety of reasons, not with, none of which has anything to do with their bunch of bad savages. Mm -hmm. They had been enslaved, and the Spanish and the Portuguese had basically tortured them and, and also killed them with disease, with smallpox, things they had no resistance to. Even today, if you go to the Mato Grosso region and you were to shake hands with an indigenous person, you might give them a, a common cold and kill them. They have no antibodies, uh, they have no antibodies exactly. So this level, what you're talking about, this level of transcendence in the character, all comes from a desire that I had to attempt something other than what had been done in the jungle format, which was to democratize the movie, which was to say that even though they were physically killed by the indigenous people, it wasn't so much... A, it was a physical death, yes, but it was not a spiritual death, that their memory lasted forever. Now, it's different for her. It is her tragedy. They saw this other side of the world that's beautiful. He confronted people from Amazonia and he said, we're all made of the same clay. Now the rest of the world thinks he's mad, mm -hmm. but it's not about him being mad. And in the end, his wife pays the price for that. So the ending has both the transcendent, hopefully, them being carried into the, you know, into the darkness, uh, but it also has, you know, the darkness, which I think it needed because he was never seen again, and neither was Jack. And the one thing, and this is just more of a, an observation. Uh, it's very the, good chocolate cake, by the, the way. way. The way you ended up doing that with cinema and the music and the movement was beautiful. That's Thank you. I mean, that's something that's not on the page. You know, it's not something that, I mean, maybe you in your head you had it in the page, but that's not, that transcendence is not something based on, you know, A, B, C, D of what, what ends up happening there. And uh, it, well, that's why we make movies. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the other thing I, I'm, I'm putting my head, myself in your position, reading this book, seeing your way in, and, you know, big books don't make good movies. There's too much there. And, the, you know, this one's got, you know, the heart of this story is about 20 years. It's got 
little detour into World War One. It's got multiple countries. It's got, you know, it, it's got a lot of stuff there. And, and your films, I mean, first off, that stuff is, I mean, that's part of the reason books are so hard to adapt. Um, and then your films have always been so, so specific. And mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. I, I, when I say limited, I mean limited in a good way. So I have to assume this was an enormous challenge of, okay, you see yourself in there, you want to get to this transcendence, but um, I have to imagine there's almost like a, a lack of confidence of like, can I, can I tell this story that stretches this far and goes in so many directions when I've been so compact in my storytelling? It's a great question you ask. A fantastic question. I've never been asked that, which is a quite a compliment to you, especially at this moment in my life, <laughs> having answered a million questions on the movie. Um, I, I would answer it this way, and I would say that usually doing a big book is a, a real challenge because you have, in a sense, too much story. Mm. The people, way don't, I c- people don't understand that short stories make better features. Uh, of course, <laughs> Cornell Woolrich, Rear Window, right? Yeah, it's I mean, so beautiful yeah. because movies are like bullets almost. They yeah. have like single ideas that you have to kind of like consolidate. And mo- books, I mean, look at The Godfather. He left so much out and, and, and also it's three hours. It's a five-act structure, not a three-act structure. Like, there's so much that, uh, a perfect example, and I, I, I just talked about this somewhere else actually. I talked about how in Godfather 2, there's a very um, important movement to the story where Gastoni Motion, who plays Don Fanucci, is killed by De Niro, the young Don Corleone. Mm-hmm. That's a very short passage in the book, the original book of The Godfather, about Don Corleone's origin. And Francis and Mario Puzo knew brilliantly that this would this small piece of story could represent a much larger whole, and um, that they made it into this mythic killing mm. that transformed the man completely. So, when I went about adapting this book, I thought, okay, I've got a high class problem, which is too much story. But I started to, and perhaps this is wrong for some viewers, but I embraced it very much, which is this idea of the episodic nature of his life, which usually is a negative. Mm. You say a movie's episodic, it's usually not a good thing. But I felt that I could use that to my advantage because it would be exactly the way that Percy Fawcett would perceive his own life, the way his family would perceive him, that the episodic nature, these chunks of a person's life, went a huge way into representing this idea that he would leave for years at a clip and they wouldn't see him and he would be away in the jungle for years at a clip, he wouldn't see them, that the passage of time became very much in league with this notion of chunks of the story that we are adapting. So in this sense, I tried to turn uh, usually a negative into a positive. Uh, whether that works, it's up to the viewer. It does, but, yeah. but but also another thing I will say is that the book took on almost a kind of novella form once I got rid of all the present day stuff with David Grant. See, David. Oh, did he do a thing where he went back and explored? He did, and it's okay. great, uh, and he's incredibly fun. The book, by the way, is fantastic, and like it's filled with great details, and it's researched up the kazoo and great in that way. Mm-hmm. I took liberties because obviously it's a two hour long movie, you have to, or you can't just yeah. do a documentary. So there are things that I had to, you know, composites and, you know, it's not eight trips, it's three, this sort of thing. But this, once I got rid of him, it really became only about 120 pages of book. And then it becomes a little more manageable. Then you can start to see the writing on the wall. And that's the way I approached it was in this episodic way. 
the person, the first person who did this and really mastered it, but no one can really do what he did, is uh, when Federico Fellini made the Knights of Cabiria. Uh, the movie's called Knights of Cabiria. You're, it's basically a series of episodes in her life, with, of course, the greatest ending ever. But the idea being that seeing these chunks of time played out would be enough to represent who the person might be. You know, Raging Bull is very elliptical, too, in a beautiful way. Anyway, that was the that was the model. The other thing about this film, and I'm once again trying to think about yourself going into this, and, and each you seem to be pushing yourself with each film, and, and your craft is clearly growing too. Um, there's an element. You're you're such a precise filmmaker. There's an element here of going into the jungle, and that obviously is a world in which you are your ability to control. Your ability, or maybe I don't know. Maybe you are able to go and scout everything out. But it seems as if there's an element here of thinking oh, the way I assume you you have worked previously, and trying to work the same way, but in a, a setting which is not only difficult. And the stories in the press notes are harrowing of you know snakes and bugs in ears it's and, all true. and, and hundred degree weather. It's all but, true. But even beyond the hell of it. I'm also just thinking about a control element and in, in your preciseness in, in your in your language. You have to forget about the control. Now that was harder in a way for Darius than it was for me. Darius Kanji, the cinematographer. Darius couldn't bring a light, you know, to Amazonia. There was one. I, I lied. There's one sequence uh, in the rubber town which had to be lit. There was no other way to do it. So. We built that rubber town in the jungle, but pretty close to a road mm-hmm. that, that snaked its way through. And we put a generator on the road and ran the cables through, which was its own form of disaster when the rains came and the mud. But, but everything else in the movie was, you know, in the, ju- in the jungle sequences, was lit by basically just shiny boards mm-hmm. and flags to block a little light and, and fire at night. And that was, uh, you're basically relinquishing control. You're saying the jungle will dictate what it is I have to do. But in some ways, that becomes its own method. And we practiced a very almost zen-like commitment to schedule on it. We did wind up going a little bit over anyway because the elements do get to you. But every day was really the same, which was at 4.30 a.m. Or Because you're talking about equatorial an equatorial country, it's day and night time is essentially the same all the time. So you wake up at 4.30 in the morning and I would put my glasses on and the glasses would be all steamed up from the humidity. I would take my rainwater shower, you know, which meant pulling this string and cold water all over you. By the way, it's never been easier to wake up at 4.30 in the morning in my life. But And you would take this van, this crappy old Nissan van, kind of bumpity bumpity bumpity, and down to the banks of the river. Just as the sun was coming up, we would get on the rafts that were built for us by the local people of uh, the Don Diego River, and they did a brilliant job for us. And we would go either up the river or down the river. If we were shooting on the river, we stayed on the river. If we were shooting in the jungle, we would beach the raft somewhere and march up half a mile into the jungle. And we tried to maintain a control in that way that the day would take on a certain sameness. And it was dictated by the weather. So you would be in the jungle. Let's say we were shooting in the jungle. The sun comes up around 6 o'clock. 
but the problem is it, it's not high enough yet in the jungle, so you can't shoot in the jungle until about 8. So you get your light in the jungle about 8, then you work in the jungle till about 2.30, and when you lose the, then you lose the light. So you don't have a long window of time. So we would do, we would do our jungle work between 8, 8 a.m. and 2.30 p.m. At 2.30 p.m. we'd go back onto the river. Now, as it is in the rainforest, because the river has the open, the, there's light on the That's river. That's right, there's the light open. on the river. That's okay. not, the trees form a natural canopy so that you still have light at 2.30. But at 3 p.m., the, the rains come in, and they last about an hour. And sometimes we shot in the rain, and in one sequence we shot in the rain. It looks great. But sometimes the rain was too hard to shoot in with lightning and all that. So uh, that was a whole other issue. And then once the rain stopped, usually around 5, you had about an hour window of magic hour light that was just gorgeous. And the good thing about the jungle is it's weird. It's okay for a control freak such as Dalius and such as myself because that's pretty much the exact same way the day would unfold every single day. Now, part of it is wearying because, let's face it, it's 100 degrees with 100% humidity, and you say that to people and they laugh. But when you're in it and it feels like you're swimming in air, uh, after about two to three hours, it gets to be fairly punishing and concentration has to it, it, the, the, uh, there are loose threads in the film because your concentration just cannot be toward the end of the day you had to get a second wind you had to force it on yourself and I, I adapted a, a kind of a thing I would say to myself in the morning which was just win the day yeah. get through today just win the day now obviously you had to, I had to do something because after week one week two week three week four week five week six you know it begins to mount Mm. as a series of challenges. How, much did you, how long did you shoot? The shoot itself was, uh, we were there for three and a half months, turns out. Um, in, in the Amazon. In, in the, the Amazon. Uh, really a grand total of four months because it was scouting and stuff. And then the shoot itself was two months. So we were there for a decent chunk of time. And um, I, I have to say that, yes, you relinquish control, but at the same time, this ritual I just spoke of is its own form of control. Mm. And it's so predictable. I mean, you could literally set your watch by when the rain was going to come. This is my interpretation of your career. I, I don't know if uh -oh. this, is, this is, but no, but, but I separate the first three from the last three mm -hmm. in that sense of, um, and I love the first three. I love New York. Um, you know, there's a crime element stories. And, and, and then there seems to be an element of, I don't know if that was, you're working on a different canvas. You've kind of freed yourself of some of the, I don't know, I don't want to call them genre elements, but there's something where it's like, there's something like wholly original, something, a whole world that you're creating and two lovers and then and then uh, the immigrant and, and, and now this film. And also there's a part where you're also painting on a bigger canvas. You know, we just talked about the jungle. This is a whole taking a James Gray movie and putting it on the jungle is a whole separate challenge. It seems as if as your craft is getting better, you're also you're also pushing yourself. Is that something, because I, I know this summer you're, I guess, going to go shoot a science fiction film, which that's is right. like a whole, that's like almost the blank canvas, I always think right. of it as, from a filmmaker standpoint. Is that something that's conscious that as your craft grows and as you're able to take your stories and, and I don't know if the words paint them on a bigger thing, that you're, you're that you're kind of growing away from certain conventions? And you I don't know, know if that's a good question. No, it's a very good question. It's, it's not so easy for me to answer that because I don't, 
what you must understand is I, I don't think of myself ever in those terms. Like I don't look at myself and say, well, the first three films were this and I'm going to do this. And this is not to, to, to say the question doesn't have validity. It has complete validity because looking back on it, what you're saying makes perfect sense. I can only tell you that what it is, I have, here's the way I would put it. I have tried to get more and more and more personal, but not more autobiographical. The Yards and Little Odessa are very autobiographical movies. So is We on the Night, by the way. I have a, a lot of cops in my family. And I, I just, uh, I feel like they adhered to the facts of the case, so to speak. Mm. But autobiographical is not the same thing as personal. And what I've tried to do is to cut out the middleman. The middleman here is genre. Mm. To try and remove um, anything that could be perceived as hackneyed. Now, I suppose that's unfair. I don't think genre movies are by nature hackneyed. Oh, no, I love them. But, but, but I do think that they're perceived as such. I mean, you could, it doesn't matter what cop movie you make. You could make cop movie by Tarkovsky and somebody would say it's, it's still a genre movie. It's in a way a prison for some. I don't believe that. I think in some ways it's very liberating. I mean, after all, Vertigo is in a way a cop movie. Sure. But I thought, you know, I, I have become so obsessed as I get older, the more I try to work and try to do something of value, the more I think of the same idea, which is I'm, the mo- I have to figure out a way to remove the wall between myself and the material, between the actor and the character, between the director and the actor, between the director and the story, that the whole point of the, of the experience is to put myself out there in the most vulnerable fashion possible. Now, this makes criticism, frankly, very painful. Sure. Um, after uh, after We Own the Night for Two Lovers, I stopped reading reviews. But it doesn't really work because you have friends that are always telling you about reviews or you know certain people you work with showing you reviews and so forth. But I'm, I've gotten much better, especially on The Immigrant and now this, on reading the reviews or whatever because if you get closer to putting yourself out there, to putting yourself into the movie, it is a form of creative success and ego catastrophe because there are people who don't like what you do. That's always the case. No movie has ever gotten every single person loving it. So you know you're putting yourself on the chopping block in some way, but that has to be what the work is. You know, I have very little respect for artists who spend their time talking down to the viewer or the spectator, who think the whole point of the escapade of making a work of art is to make fun of other people. Um, to me, the movies maybe that I've made may be good or bad, but I've tried to make sure that they're democratic in the best possible way. I don't, I don't mean politically democratic, although certainly that would be nice, but what I mean is that th- we don't point fingers at people and call them the bad guy. Hmm. Because I don't think that that's really what the the function of art is, if I may use that dirty word. And so when you talk about the first three and the last three, what you're really talking about is this divide that now looking back I'm very conscious of, and it started with Two Lovers, where I became very convinced that I was going to put myself in that movie. That I am in part Leonard Kraditor. Now, 
it's not my story autobiographically. I wound up marrying this incredible woman who is just brilliant and gorgeous and she's the greatest. I did not have to deal with dry cleaning businesses and daughters of a dry cleaner or Gwyneth Paltrow, you know, kind of using me. That's not my personal story at all. Mm. But the struggle that Leonard has, the struggles over the idea of his desire, that's personal. And I wanted to decouple it from the autobiographical. And the immigrant was the same way, that that woman, the questioning that that woman had was she had to reject, where Ava had to reject her Catholicism and everything she was taught from the crib to believe in order to attempt to save a loved one. But how conflicted she would be, how tortured she would be, that is personal to me. And Joaquin is personal to me in that film. And Percy Fawcett in this film, Charlie, is personal to me. That the world, the world is, a, is a, a beautiful and terrible place. And the more that we can embrace that in the work, the more we make it not about us in some solipsistic or narcissistic way, but the more that we can make the work an expression of our state of soul and make ourselves be vulnerable so that when people say, your movie is shit, it hurts us, and it's good that it hurts us. Because if it hurts us, it means we put a lot of it, a lot of ourselves into it. You know the people it doesn't hurt when somebody says, I hate, I hate that guy's movies or that one's movies? It does not hurt the people for whom it's a business. Some pictures work, some pictures don't. I just did it for money, I don't know. It, it, it's the reason we do it. We have to embrace the suck, so to speak. James Gray. Um, thank you so much. Uh, I really hope people see this film. And one last thing. After all you've been through, and by the way, fuck Harvey Weinstein, I'm so happy you're with Amazon and that this film is getting out the way it is. You deserve a good release. They're doing a great job with it, and I, I, really, hope that, I really hope that people see this film because, I, you know, after The Immigrant, I don't want to... I was so pissed. Um, and I, it, I, Plan B are good people. Ted Hope's are good they're people. Yeah, and it's great. Just, and there's something as a fan of your work. I'm just so happy to see this film be brought into the world in a in a in a proper way. Well, that's very sweet of you to say. You know, the that the immigrant, you know, that that was received quite well ultimately, oh, and I had oh, a I huge know. weight lifted from my shoulders when it came out. So I, it's I don't have complaints ultimately about that film. It's nice to see it be treated in with the respect and the distribution um, that it deserves. Thank you so, so much. Thank you for your time. Thanks. Thank you.